0: Okay, so we're gonna, it's going to be another content one today, I think, and uh, it's going to feel a little bit fast. About, uh, I want to say maybe 20 some odd years ago, I had a, me and a, a buddy were hanging out, and uh, a really good buddy of mine, and he, he had this movie that he wanted to watch. Uh, it was one of his favorite movies, and he highly recommended it to me, and he was like, you should really see this movie. Uh, And unfortunately, we didn't really have the time to see it. But he was really keen, so he said, okay, this is what I'll do. And he he turned on the movie, and he said it in fast-forward. And as he was fast-forwarding through this movie, he explained to me, narrated what was going on. And then at key moments, he kind of stopped the fast-forward and let it play. He said, here, this is a really good part. And um, not my favorite movie today. Um, I didn't necessarily enjoy that experience. But I feel like, to some degree, that's a little bit of what I'm doing in this course in China, uh, Christian history. Um, we're fast-forwarding through a lot of stuff, and then we're hitting key points. And I'm, I I want to try to... Re- My attempt is to try to convey to you just how good and how interesting Christian history is, and I hope you, you catch that. But I have to apologize because I know that at times we're just going really fast. We're watching it and fast-forward. So... Today is going to even feel even more like that, because we're going to fast forward through a lot of history. We're going to miss a lot of um, really good and really key events and people. Um, and I would just encourage you, maybe, do your own reading on some of these guys. Uh, Cyprian is a father, C-Y-P-R-I-A-N. He's very influential in the third century. We don't have time for him, I'm afraid. But definitely look, look him up if you have time. Another guy, uh, he's west, he's from Carthage. From the east, we have another guy, Dionysius the Great, or Dionysius of Alexandria, another really big character who's really influential in his sphere, particularly in the eastern part of, of, of the empire. Unfortunately, we don't have time for him either. What's that name again? I'm sorry. Uh, Dionysius it's the Great. D I O N Y S I U S. Just uh, some key guys that you could definitely look up. Unfortunately. We're jumping right out of origin, and we're rapidly moving to the 4th fourth, uh, fourth century here. Um, there's also big heresies that come up. You know, there's this guy, Paul of St. La Soto, who's a big heretic for a brief time. Uh, some other guys. Um, all these are really good things that I wish we had time for, and I definitely encourage you to you know do your own reading on. But we really have to fast forward, because I do want to get through this course. And what I'm going to try to do today is try to fast forward us to the fourth century, so we can kind of set the scene for two big controversies that I want to deal with. The first big controversy is called the Aryan Controversy, that, that occurs in the fourth century. And then the second big controversy that I want to kind of complete this Sunday school class with is the Pelagian Controversy, which is the next century, the fifth century. So that's where I'm going, and then we're going to wrap up, I think, um, this uh, Sunday school class. Okay? So today, um, we stopped with Origen last time. Before we really continue, Origin, where, where he was martyred, or well, where he died, would have been about the, in the 250s AD, so in the middle of the third century. Now, before we just pick up from there, let's back up a little bit. We want to go back and uh, revisit some of our friends who we were chit-chatting with before, the Roman emperors. We've gotten to know some of these guys, and. Most of them haven't necessarily been all that admirable. Some have been okay. And I think the last emperor that we may have talked about may have been all the way back at Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius was a late 2nd century Roman emperor. So let's just pick up from there, and we're going to start fast-forwarding here. All right, so Marcus Aurelius, he died in 180 AD. He had a son named Commodus. Commodus succeeded him. And Commodus was a terrible emperor. He was probably also mentally ill. Eventually his own wrestling coach killed him in 192 AD. After 192, uh, there was a succession crisis. Okay, who's going to be emperor now? After a brief crisis, with two emperors coming and going, a military leader named Septimius Severus came. You don't have to remember all these names, by the way, just to kind of get you an idea what's going on. Um, so he came to power and he set up the Severan dynasty. And that Severan dynasty lasted a good while. This is 193 AD when it starts, and uh, it continues until 235 AD with about four emperors. The last Severan emperor is Alexander Severus. This is the same emperor, by the way, whose mother met Origen. Say, this guy, he's the last Severan, the last of the Severan dynasty. He is on a campaign fighting German tribes in the northern part of the empire, so that's going to be in the map up in this area. His army mutinies against him. The commander of his army, along with the troops, kill him. He kills bodyguard, and then the commander takes the throne and becomes the emperor. Well, what happens from this point on is, is called the third century crisis for Rome. The Roman Empire spirals into chaos, and uh, that it lasts, basically, it's a civil war that lasts from about 235, a series of wars really, that lasts from 235 to 284, almost half a century, and the Roman Empire in this time sees over 20 emperors come and go in rapid succession. Many, if not most of them, are soldiers or army commanders of some sort or another. And uh, some of them reign a few years, some of them only reign a few months. Uh, It's just a rapid succession from one to the next. Most of them die violent deaths, Uh, some of them die by the plague, so in addition to this political crisis and warfare crisis that the empire is going on, there's also a series of plagues. Several big plagues hit the empire in this time, which makes everything all that much worse. Um, At one point, the empire splits into three empires, and then reunites again. So this picture I just pulled up, this kind of shows that a little bit from the 3rd century. You've got the three empires that it split into at one point. So it splits up, and then it comes back together by another more powerful um, military leader who takes over. Finally, the dust all settles, in a manner of speaking, to some extent. In 284, when a guy named Diocletian comes to power and sets up what's called the Tetrarchy, which means the rule of four. Okay. Now, a few notes, um, before we really continue with Diocletian, we're going to spend a little more time on him, but before we continue with him, a few notes on what was going on in the church. We've already kind of met the guys who live, a couple of guys who lived during this period, origin in particular. Um, with all this 20, these 20-some-odd em- em- emperors, what's the effect on the Christian church at, at this time? Well, for the most part, these emperors... Maintain the status quo that we've been familiar with, where officially Christianity is illegal and from here and here and there people persecute it. The emperor may or may not necessarily um, make that a program. He may not be keen on cracking down on it, but persecutions are happening here and there. However, there are several emperors, a few emperors, who consciously, in this period, consciously set about to persecute the church. Last week we mentioned one, his name was Decius. So Decius, he's, he comes to power, he's like, I'm going to get rid of these Christians. And he makes a program of it. So that occurs along the way. He, he only rules a few short years, fortunately, for the Christians. Um, but at the same time, while you get these mean emperors who come to power, there's also a couple of emperors who are friendly to the Christians. So just before Decius, there was this guy who's called Philip the Arab, and he he ruled for kind of a while, actually compared to this time period, it counts as a while, he ruled from 244 to 249, and he was actually very friendly um, and very benevolent to the church. Eusebius actually thought he was a Christian. That's doubtful, I think, but um, all the same, he was that friendly to the church that people thought both of him. There's also... A little bit later, um, in 253, there's a father-son duo who come to power, and their names respectively are Valerian and Gallienus, And they're a little bit of a contradiction, because Valerian didn't like the Christians, and he actually sort of proactively set about to persecute the church. Um, now, he was captured, they're, they're co-reigning at the same time, he was captured by the Persians. In a battle in 260 A.D., and then that left his son to be the only ruler. His son was the opposite. His son's wife was actually a Christian, according to the historians. And um, so he, not surprisingly, was very friendly to the Christians, and he issued the first official edict by a Roman emperor that guaranteed freedom and liberty to the churches. Um, so that was he's one kind of uh, exception along the way, and he ruled for... A fair a fair while till he eventually was assassinated as well. In summary, these fifty years for the Christian Church were, you could say, kind of business as usual in the Roman Empire: times of peace, times of turmoil, times of persecution, back to times of peace. Uh, a lot of martyrs at which when when there were persecutions, they could be very severe, and there's certain certainly a long list of martyrs that the church the names of which many of them the church recorded, the stories of which many of them, again, the church recorded during this time. So, that brings us to Diocletian. Now, Diocletian, again, he's a military commander, and when he comes to power, he enacts a a number of large reforms in the way that the Roman government operates. Um, Probably one of the biggest things that he does that's new. He decides, he's, he thinks, well, this part of the problem is this empire is too big for one man to rule by himself. The emperor, empire was huge, of course. So he says, we're going to divide it in the middle. And he comes right over here, and he takes this area, the Adriatic Sea, and he says, east, that's going to be one half of the empire ruled by one man. West, it's going to be the other half of the empire, that's going to be ruled by me. Now, he sets up what's called the Tetrarchy, the Rule of Four, so what that basically is is on one side you have a senior emperor called Augustus, and then under him you have a junior emperor called Caesar. So on the west, on the east side, Diocletian is Augustus, and he takes a junior emperor, sets him up as, and the junior emperor, by the way, is the heir that everybody understands is once this guy's out, the the senior's out, this guy is the heir, so there's no... In theory, there's not supposed to be a succession crisis. So he sets up this guy named Galerius as his Caesar, his junior emperor. Over in the west, he sets up a guy named Maximian as the Augustus over there. And under Maximian, there's a junior emperor called Constantius Chlorus. Okay? So... So far, he's he's not a power monger. That's a good thing. There's a lot of good things that Diocletian probably did for the Roman Empire. For the Roman Empire. Unfortunately, so what we what we do see with Diocletian is, by most metrics, he was able, he was talented. Um, he is credited with, in to some extent, ending the the 50 year civil war that had nearly destroyed the emperor. Unfortunately, the church doesn't remember him all that fondly because under Diocletian what begins is what the Church remembers as the Great Persecution. In fact, it probably wasn't entirely Diocletian's idea. Uh, The real villain is perhaps his co-emperor named Galerius. Now, Galerius hated the Christians, and Galerius um, used his power uh, to enact a systematic program in an attempt to destroy and Christianity, get rid of Christianity once and for all. So he was able to persuade Diocletian in the east, the Augustus, and Maximian in the West, the Augustus over there, to enact he persuaded them to enact an empire-wide systematic program of extermination of Christian extermination. Christians were to be hunted down. Uh, They were to be induced to renounce their faith by whatever means of torture necessary, and finally to be killed if they did not comply. Uh, What follows in this time is one of some of the most gruesome atrocities in history. We have reports of of Christians who are flogged until their bones protrude from their flesh. Um, Machines were used to mechanically tear people's uh, limbs off of their bodies. Uh, Various means were used to slowly burn people alive and cause as much suffering as possible. Uh, There are mass crucifixions. Uh, Many Christians were crucified upside down. Eusebius tells us this was to make them die, rather than from suffocation, die from hunger or dehydration. Eusebius tells us that the governments in various provinces and cities seem to almost compete with each other for new and creative methods of cruelty um, it, it also wasn't limited to adults people of all ages their families uh, adults and children were treated this way punishments were typically carried out in the most public and humiliating of ways um, women additionally were sexually humiliated there were accounts of Christian women who though they would not deny Christ they committed suicide to avoid the wars that awaited them at the hands of the guards and executioners. Uh, many people, many Christians during this time did in fact uh, deny the faith. They performed pagan sacrifices. At the same time, many, many others were steadfastly endured unbelievable tortures, according to the courts, until they were killed. Or when the persecution finally ended, many of them who had in fact remained faithful were finally released. Persecution did eventually end. Uh, perhaps one of one part of the the Empire during this time that kind of escaped all this horror would have been way up here, kinda of in the northwest. And the reason for that is that was Constantius Corus. Remember the Caesar of the West, the Junior? That was his area. And he he wasn't he didn't have a stomach for treating the Christians that way. He um kind of, uh, we're told that he did maybe destroy a few church buildings, but otherwise he didn't put people to death. He didn't people, he was like, I- I'm not going to follow this. Meanwhile, in the east, this all went on. Under Maximian, in the west, Maximian's area, in the Augustus of the west, this all went on. Um, and to, to some extent, Valerius and Maximian were quite zealous in uh, executing this plan. Christians in Britain, this area for... for um, Course uh, would be Britain, modern day France, Gaul. Now, the persecution lasted about a decade and then it was called off. Eusebius, um, our historian, tells us that Galerius was the real bad guy. I remember, he was afflicted with this horrendous disease so much that he began to think it might have something to do with the Christian God taking vengeance on him. So, at, right before, toward the end of his life, Galerius um, issued an edict sort of reversing his policies, and persecution after about a decade finally came to an end, and a lot of the Christians who were enslaved or imprisoned at that time were released, and meetings started happening again. So that's the uh, great persecution. Before we can go, on, any, any questions? Mm-hmm. You, you did mention Eusebius, right? So, what time period are you currently in? Good at? question. Eusebius is an eyewitness. Eyewitness uh, to Okay. So some that. of these events. So, if you're currently in... So we're, we're at the... We're, we are covering the period from... Let's <laughs> see. Uh, comes into power 284. Okay. So, pretty soon after that, if not immediately, this persecution begins. So, we're at the end of the third century. Okay. And at this point, Eusebius, I think, is a young man, and he's... It, when you read him, you can tell the difference. He's now reporting stuff that he's seen, that he saw. personally uh, person to he, he a lot of that work. He had friends who he had seen the, the Christian community. He was getting this information from them uh, at real the time. Okay, and you, you're using some of his content, some I mean, of his yeah. writings to prepare? Okay. yeah, his his a lot of his content. Um, okay, we're, we're carefully um, uh, taking account of. But yeah, he's um, he's really helpful. Yeah. So did um, Valerius? Did he have like? literature from, like, Roman history of, like, how the previous Roman emperors... Galerius, I'm sure he did. Yeah, I mean, uh, there was this... kind From what when I read what these guys say, like some of these Romans at the time say, you get this impression that they know that here's this sect called the Christians, uh, and our emperors from time past have kind of held different views on, you know, how to handle it. And then they, court, the, the ones, the persecutors, they kind of build their own rhetoric, so to speak, their own ideology on why it's reasonable for them to persecute them. I think in, in Galeria's case, it was kind of the idea that um, Christians had abandoned the worship of the gods, which was the ancestral religion, and that's why Rome was suffering problems. It was something to that effect. So. Um, all right. What becomes of the tetrarch? Well, the two senior emperors, Diocletian and Maximian, they both retire while they're still alive, and that leaves Constantius Chlorus and Galerius to succeed to the new to the uh, senior positions as emperors. They become Augusta. Yeah. Galerius then chooses the next both the next junior emperors, uh, east and west. In the east, he picks a guy named Max Maximine Dia. Don't quote the pronunciation. And then in the West, he picks a guy in the <coughs> 70s. Now, in 306 AD, Constantius Chlorus dies. And um, his troops don't particularly love the other guys that are in, in control here. But he had, Chlorus has a son. And so his troops, much fonder of Chlorus' son than they are of the other guys, they sort of mutiny, so to speak, and they declare Chlorus' son. Augustus, that is the senior emperor. His son's name is Constantine. Uh, he's the father of Constantine. Maximian also has a son whose name is Maxentius. Uh, and Maxentius's troops, likewise, kind of, um, they declare Maxentius to be the new Augustus. And in, in, kind of in, in the crisis that unravels there, Severus, who Galerius had chosen to be um, the junior emperor under the course, Severus gets killed um, and you have this new situation where effectively Constantine is the senior emperor and Maxentius is the junior emperor. Constantine is ruling in the far west, Maxentius is ruling from Rome. So now the tetrarchy has, you have Constantine and Maxentius in the west, you have um, Galerius. Galerius dies about the same time, dies of the disease. And there's another guy that he picked called Licinius. So Licinius actually succeeds him. So now in the West you've got Licinius as the senior Augustus, and as the junior Caesar you have Maximian. This doesn't last super long either. Um, Eventually Constantine attacks Maxentius. Uh, We don't know. I don't. I don't. I couldn't figure out exactly why it was. Whether it was a power struggle or whether it was. The fact that Maxentius Maxentius was persecuting the Christians, or or what it was. But um, he attacks Maxentius at Rome. Maxentius dies in the process of the battle. And Constantine becomes the sole ruler in the West. At the same time, Licinius gets in a fight with Maximine, his junior emperor, in the East. And he wins that fight. So now the empire is ruled by two. Constantine in the West, Licinius in the East. We're at 312 A.D., the following year, 313 A.D., well, back up a little bit, when Constantine defeated Maxentius at Rome, he openly proclaimed that he was a Christian. Now, we don't know if he became a Christian right then or if he had kind of previously been one, but it was very overt, it was very open, it was very uh, intentional. He even kind of took the monogram, the symbol that the Christians were using at that time, and he put it on his helmet, and he put it on all the shields of the soldiers. So he's now reigning in the West as a overtly self-proclaiming Christian emperor. <coughs> Licinius, like Constantine, at least in the beginning, is very friendly to the Christians. So they get together and they agree on issuing an edict. You've probably heard of this before. It's called the Edict of Milan. This is 313 AD that they issue this. And in the Edict of Milan, they guarantee freedom of religion. To all subjects in the empire, let me read just the opening. One of the opening statements from that edict: the emperors say this. We have long intended that freedom of worship should not be denied, but that everyone should have the right to practice his religion as he chose. So, at last, after so long, such a long period of persecution, the church has a very good period of rest and um, of freedom. Licinius honors this for a long time, then for the States, he gets into some pagan worship, and he starts actually persecuting the Christians again, which incites Constantine to fight him. So Constantine ultimately defeats Licinius in the east, and Constantine, we go back to a single emperor, Constantine ruling the entire Roman Empire. And he, that is completed, uh, just to your time frame, he defeats Lysia, Licinius at, at, and uh, becomes the sole emperor in 324. Right? 3, 324? Yeah. So he just went through like 75 years or something. Almost a little bit. Like I said, I'm, as we from earlier, there's a lot of good church history in that period that we just rushed through. But in order to get to some really big things, um, what I would say is. Encourage you guys to go read up on that period. There's a lot of good stuff to look at. But we need to move on to some of the bigger things that are coming forward. So that is all I have for today. As far as a lesson, this I'm considering this part one of a, of a lesson. Uh, when we come back and, and do part two, we really want to maybe visit some some things, some really important truths and lessons that I think we as a church today can learn with respect to how the church at that time faced encountered, accepted any. All of these events, especially Constantine's.